Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalms 57? Singing in the storm. This is a prayer and it's a song, of course. You know, and I, I, we've all experienced it. We've, we've, we've been there knowing that it could happen. When a cold front coming pretty fast from one direction comes against a wall of hot air, something's going to happen. Sometimes it's a tornado or a, a series of tornadoes. But at the very least, it's a pretty bad storm. Because one thing of one kind is clashing with a thing of another kind. And a storm is bound to happen. People who are going through this world have the, who have the kingdom in their hearts are clashing with the world. And there are storms. There are tribulations. There are storms. Things that really rock our lives. David, of course, faced many storms in the course of his life. So let's look at Psalm 57. He begins with a cry for mercy and a confession of, of his trust. For the conductor, that means set. This, this psalm is set. This song is set to do not destroy. Now, I, I, I would love to have seen these things if someone could have preserved the music in note form as we understand it today. But this was a kind of music. This, this was a, a song. This was a way to do a song. And so a, a way to set the melody was one way was set it to do not destroy. David's song, his prayer could be titled Do Not Destroy. He doesn't want to be destroyed. He's surrounded by people who want to destroy him. It's a michtam, it's a meditative, it's a contemplative, prayerful type of song. And this came to him. God inspired him with this song when he fled from before Saul in the cave. Now that story is back over in 1 Samuel. I think it was Doeg the Edomite betrayed him when uh, the priest gave him Goliath's sword and he went and told Saul and Saul came and killed all the priests except one of them escaped. All of their sons are destroyed their animals, their, just their, their homes, everything. Very cruel. And so this 
One priest who was able to escape joined David, and David said, you're safe with me. But David still is running from Saul. And here he's hiding from Saul in a cave, and he's singing a prayer. Now, mine, again, mine is, uh, mine is a verse. I think verse 2 is still probably your verse 1. In the Hebrew, they always separate the title. Okay, so next verse, verse 2 in, in my Hebrew Bible. Be gracious, be gracious to me, Elohim. Be gracious to me, Elohim. The names that David uses, that God gives to him and inspires him, he's in... He's in horrible trouble. He's, he's bound to be destroyed if God does not intervene. The storm is too great unless God gives him shelter. There's nothing he can do, so he just appeals to the grace of God. And he calls him Elohim. Now that is the name of God that is used to describe God in mighty creative power. So, so nothing can happen without God's power. It's also used and it's probably one of the lesser used names of God in the Old Testament. I think Yahweh probably is the most used uh, name thousands of times in the Hebrew Scriptures. But that he would not use, at this point, that he would not use Yahweh. He's crying out to Elohim, who is also seen in the Hebrew Scriptures as the God of justice and authority. So it's, he, he, of course he knows he has a covenant and he'll talk about the mercy or the covenant loyalty of God in the course of this, uh, in the course of this psalm. But the appeal here is to the creating all-powerful God of justice and authority. The highest appeal. Now think about it. He's being pursued. He has a covenant with God. God established a covenant with David. David is the king. Saul is the people's choice. He still wears the crown. And he's, Saul is standing in his flesh fighting against God's will and God's man. But Saul is still the king until God says otherwise. So Saul is an authority. And in this setting, he's the highest authority in the land right there. But there is one to whom David can appeal who is the highest of all authority and that is the one who is seen in the Bible as Elohim. Creator God, God of justice, authority, and power. So there's no higher appeal. So he makes his appeal. This is how his heart feels. He's saying, I'm going to go above all the powers in this world and I'm going to appeal to the highest and greatest power, and that is Almighty God. 
Be gracious to me because my soul took refuge in you. All right, it's a storm. He needs to hide in the storm. He needs to be sheltered in the storm. So here's, here's how he puts it. He says, my soul took refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until these calamities pass by. It's a great statement of trust here. Appealing to the grace of God. I'm sheltering, I'm hunkering down in you, God. And then he says, in the shelter of your wings. On either end of the Ark of the Covenant were likenesses of cherubim. And this one extended his wing this way over the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And this one extended his wings this way. And they practically touched. And that which was beneath those wings was the shadow of the wings. In the shadow of the wings was the mercy seat, the golden lidded, the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the wooden box that was plated in gold. I'm taking shelter, I'm, ref, I'm taking refuge in you. I'm snuggling up and cuddling up under the wings of your cherubim. Now, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you will note that when Adam and Eve sinned, God cast them out of the garden. He did not destroy the tree of life, but he placed cherubim there to guard the way to the tree of life, to keep it, to guard it. So the way to the tree of life has not been lost. But it is in the shelter of the wings of those cherubim which God placed there and they are figuratively illustrated here as shadowing the mercy seat. There is an archangel, there's only one. There is no indication in the Bible that there's more than one archangel, Michael. And he is committed, apparently, according to Daniel, Michael is committed to the task of keeping God's people. But the cherubim, and there were originally at least five, there were five of them. The cherubim, according to Ezekiel, were charged with perfectly obeying the will of the Spirit of God. And they bore up, they held up the Merkabah, the chariot throne of the Son of God. So these, these unique, even strange beings are described. They have four faces, you know, one of a man, one of each kind of animal here on the other three sides. And they have these wings 
and they move swiftly. They move, they move at a speed that is incomprehensible for us. And when the Spirit says this way, they go this way. And when the Spirit says that way, they go that way. And they must always be under the authority of the Son of God. That's where they are. Now, originally there were five. One of them has fallen. The anointed, the captain of the bunch. Satan. He was day star at one time. He is seen in Ezekiel as said, every precious stone was your covering. It was your cloak. It was your magnificent robe. And pipes and tabrets were fixed within the robe. So what he wore was a magnificent display of radiant jewelry. And the settings and the sockets were wind instruments. Pipes and tabrets. So that, and the, the breath, the ruach of God, the breath, the spirit of God would, would pass, would, would, would move, and the, the, the wind, the breath of God passing through the anointed cherub the chief captain of the five bearing up the throne of the Son of God when the spirit breath of God moved through him, he was an orchestra. His music was perfect. The dazzling display of his robe was perfect. But it was only good because the glory of God shined on it and the spirit of God moved through it. Now, if you take away the glory of God, you know, you can put me in a dark cave with no light and I can be tripping over rubies and diamonds and everything. And I, I just think of it as an aggravating bunch of rocks that are hurting my feet. You don't know the glory of a diamond or a ruby or anything else like that. The stones, the gemstones of God, unless light shines on it. It's no good. Unless it's reflect, it can't produce its own light. It has to reflect light. And a wind instrument can't produce its own music. It has to have wind that passes through it. So this is a picture of the anointed cherub until iniquity was found in him, the Bible says. So Isaiah talks about the pride of Daystar and he was kicked out. There are four of them left. Just think of that. He's one. There's still four like him and they're unfallen. And then there's Michael, the great archangel. Well, these likenesses are the ones who guard the way to the mercy seat. In other words, anything that has enjoyed the grace of God who has been privileged to have had the mercy seat of a covenant God, the mercy of a mercy seated God extended to him is always in the shadow of those wings. 
He always exists in the covenant love of God. Nothing can take that away. That's a great refuge. Doesn't matter what the storm is. He's, he's in the refuge. He is in the shadow of, of the wings. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until these calamities pass by. Not if they pass by, but when they pass by. The storm doesn't last forever, right? We all run to the TV and get the play-by-play -play and watch the radar and listen to the guy tell the next little place that needs to look out for a tornado. And they do a pretty good job of it, you know. But we can also see the other side of it, and we can see, you know, on the other side of that bunch of red and yellow and all, on the other side of that, it's calm. It will pass by sooner or later. This is where David is. He knows by faith in God that someone with a kingdom in his heart, especially the king, whose son will be the king of kings, the kingdom of God in his heart, clashing with the world and the flesh in Saul, creates a storm. And calamities come from the storm, but it's going to pass by and he's going to be okay. Be gracious to me, Elohim, because I'm sheltered in you. Shadow of your wings. I will cry out to Elohim, Elohim. I will cry out to God most high. Most high. So he adds that Elohim to it. it uh, most high. And, and then it's, uh, well, what it means is, upon the God who completes everything he said he would do for me. The last three Hebrew words. That's what, it, it, this is the most high, almighty God of justice and authority, of creative power. I'm crying out to him and he's not going to leave anything unfinished. This is probably the greatest struggle in a believer's life. You've heard the old saying, let go and let God. Well, really, that's probably, the, not probably, that's the best advice you can have. We, we, we try in our own power, and, and we see even in the patriarch's lives, they try to help God out. They just can't rest in God. You know, Christ is our Sabbath. Rest in Christ. David has learned this lesson. I'm going to rest in God, take refuge here. The storm makes a lot of noise, but it's not going to bother me. It's going to pass. And he is going to complete everything that he has promised to do for me. That's how powerful the word of God is. He rested in it. Proud, pride, human pride causes us to think that we have to help God or that we have to do things. We have to do something. You know, we just, we just, we just can't sit still and just completely trust God with the things of our lives. We have to force the issue and all this kind of thing. Dwight L. Moody, if I can, if I can remember how to 
quote him correctly. He said, no one will ever make it to heaven standing in himself or some such thing. No one is in heaven in any whit of what he in the least way did for himself. Not one. It was all of God. So this is what he's saying here. God will complete everything he has said he will do for me. Next verse. He will send from heaven. And save me from the reproach of him who yearns to swallow me up. Selah. Now there's a pause. The music would build to a crescendo and then it would come to a rest. A quarter rest. It had come to a big rest. And then it starts again. Elohim will send his kindness. This, that's, that's that word... His, his, his loyal kindness, his loyal love. Elohim will send it to me. Elohim will send his covenant loyalty, love, kindness, love, and his truth. Saul is fighting against the word of God. Because God has already said something about David. What should Saul have done in a perfect world? Saul should have taken off his crown, placed it on David's head, and should have knelt before the, the, the king whom God had appointed and had anointed through Samuel. He didn't do that. Trying to destroy him. Trying to kill him right now. So the tornado is there. The two fronts are clashing. What do you do? David's not going to fight him. He's going to let God take care of it. He will send from heaven. He will save me. I don't care how badly they think of me or what they try to do. He will send his kindness, his covenant love, and his truth. His word is truth. His word cannot be reversed. It's irrevocable, unalterable, unstoppable. So David knows the time is coming. Saul won't be there anymore. Won't be his problem anymore. And David knows that at that time he will be the king. But then comes this crisis. And he describes it. My soul is among lions. I lie among the, soul, the sons of men who are on fire. Their teeth are like spears and arrows. Their tongue like a sharp sword. And here's what's happening to David. The minions of Saul are spreading lies and rumors about David so that David will lose his hero status. You know, hey, this guy ain't everything you think he is. He's, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. Let me tell you this. So, this to David was the same thing as a sword piercing his heart and as spears and arrows coming at him. What comes out of their mouths? They were, they were shouting lies, the soldiers, the servants of Saul, shouting all these lies, this, this, uh, this battle uh, of misinformation. We don't have to suffer from that today, do we? 
Well, yeah. David suffered greatly. How does David win? You don't win a fight like this. God has to win it for you. The only way that David is going to be shown as victorious and the only way that all these things are going to be seen as untrue is that God will bring him through the most horrible trial and he will endure and come out greater than he was before. And so God will have demonstrated his glory to the people. That's the only way David can escape. So he says, be exalted above the heavens, Elohim, over all the earth, be your glory. David is not looking for him, glory for himself. He's not, he's, I mean, he, he, he was just out there tending sheep. <laughs> the last thing on his mind on that day when Samuel came a-calling was that he was about to be anointed the king of Israel. That, he, that would be the furthest thing from his mind. And so now he still knows that when these calamities pass, it will be to the glory of God. Over all the earth be your glory. Now just think of where this story continues. It continues in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. It continues beyond his death, burial, and resurrection. It continues into heaven where now the son of David is the king of kings and he comes again to be seated on the throne of David as the great king of the kingdom. So you see, God's glory just continues to grow because of the events that have occurred here. They prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit for me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it, Silla. So the crescendo moves again. And if you see the next scene in your mind, these, these awful soldiers and hateful men digging pits to trap him and cover it up so that he'll fall into it. What happens is they walk around in circles and they fall into it themselves. They fall into their own pit, most likely physically, but of course spiritually. And then he calls for a pause to the music right there. Then he makes a commitment to worship. You remember I told you he starts out in a mess in his prayer. God Almighty, I'm in a mess. I don't know what to do. I know what I'll do. I'll turn it over to you. And then he starts worshiping God. He's still in the cave. They're still out there lying about him, digging pits, holding spears and swords. They're still out there, but he's going to go ahead and worship God because he believes the word of God. He understands the glory of God. So here he goes. My heart is firm. It is steadfast, Elohim. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Now he's not going to do it right now because he's hiding in a cave. Awaken my glory. You might, you might could say the glory of my soul, the fullness of who I am in the Lord, 
which is to my honor. Awaken. Awaken me, lyre and harp. I will awaken the dawn. So here's what he's doing, you see. He's tuning up his instruments. I'm about to sing because Saul is about to fail. And I will awaken the joyful voice that is mine, the music that God has given to me, and the instruments that I can, that I can play. And I'm going to do it happily with joy. And I'm going to do it loud and long. And I'll awaken the dawn. I will praise you among the peoples, Adonai. Now he uses another name. Master. Sovereign Lord. Sustainer and owner of everything. He puts that into the thought of the peoples of the world. The nations of the world. So it doesn't really matter where people are. He is the Lord of all. He is the sustainer, the provider of everybody. I will sing to you among the nations for your kindness, your covenant loyal love. Reaches up to the heavens and your truth is up to the clouds. There is nowhere, there is no place where God is not connected to his people by his power. Not, not our power, you see. Be exalted above the heavens, Elohim, over all the earth. Be your glory. David is a prophet. This seemingly insignificant set of circumstances will grow and grow and grow until the spiritual kingdom becomes the physical kingdom and the physical kingdom becomes the eternal kingdom. And it'll keep growing from there as well. Okay, we'll stop there and uh, have our uh, deacon prayer time.